Hey guys, welcome to episode 84 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well and enjoying these last few days of summer. Don't say that. I'm, I... You're not ready to give it up? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, or winter, depending on where you're living. So That's true. We well, don't sorry. want to discriminate. Sorry, I didn't mean to be so uh, abrupt with that. It was like, <laughs> it was like halting you there, but I, I just, the fact that summer's gone kind of sucks. I know. I start work again on Monday, so... I have to say goodbye to the summer version of myself. No more truly lemonades at 11 a.m. while yeah. I while I watch Bravo. And <laughs> but then again, let's be real. Due to everything going on, I don't even think any of us had like a like a true summer. That's true. It did know? make things really really weird. I usually go to North Carolina to visit my family, but things have been a little crazy in North Carolina. And then I'd have to quarantine when I came back up here. So we just all kind of stayed where we are. Yeah. Hey, listen, it is what it is, I guess. There's always next summer. There is always next summer. And now next summer, we're going to have an actual backyard that we can enjoy. So we'll be having fun with that. Um, yeah, maybe we should try like an episode outside. John, I think that would be horrific for acoustics and stuff. I don't know. Maybe some of our audience members would like to listen to like the birds and the sh- and like the nice And the breeze outdoors. messing up our audio. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah. All right. But it was, you know what? The thought that counts. I try. Yeah. You know, it's something different. We wish you could. we could have all of you guys on our deck, but... We can't. It'd be a lot to fit. I mean, we, could, we possibly could fit everybody from Patreon on there, but... Yeah, we could. That would be about it. <laughs> and that would just be the outside area. Yes. Okay, so before we begin, we want to thank you guys for helping us out with the podcast. Whether you're spreading the word, giving us a review, or joining our Patreon page, it's all a major help, and we appreciate everything that you do for us. And, of course, we will be thanking all of our new Patreons since the last episode at the end of the show. We always love doing that. We do. So, John, are you ready for this one? Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm always ready. (laughs) The crime we're covering today takes us back to January of 2009 in the borough of North Wales, Pennsylvania, a town with a population around 3,000 in Montgomery County, which is located about 30 miles northwest of Philadelphia. North Wales is an interesting town, as it's known for its active and eclectic business district, while still maintaining a small-town charm. When I was doing a Google Maps tour of the town, which I do for, like, all the cases we cover, and the crime scenes, because it's just, like, good to kind of get a feel of where this is taking place and, like, where it actually happened, um, it was just, like, a really quaint, cute little town, but it was really busy in the center of town. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It seemed like a really nice place to live. So it's for that charming reason, I can imagine that the Che family decided to move to North Wales. The perfectly nuclear Che family consisted of four members. Robert and Janice Che were the father and mother, and their children were named Richard and Mina. Now, in the early 2000s, they were kind of like young adults, but they were still living home, which... I wish we could have. We can all understand. It was also at that time that the family was fortunate enough to buy one of the large McMansion homes on the beautiful cul-de-sac of Gwenmont Drive, which is known for its sprawling colonial and Tudor-styled homes with plush manicured lawns. But the road to their American dream ending was not easy for Robert or Janice Che. They had to work really hard to get where they ended up. Robert Che was born Jun Sung Che in South Korea in 1951, only three years after the official establishment of South Korea, 
and in the midst of the Korean War. His life had been difficult. His family dwelling did not have electricity. So in the winter months, he had to spend most of his time cutting wood so he and his family could stay warm. Robert wanted to get out of the tiny village that he grew up in and make actual money for himself and those he loved. So during a particularly oppressive regime, he joined the military. And he only served for the required amount of time, and then he chose to leave. Robert then made the choice to move to the United States of America after his service time was up. A scary move considering the fact that he didn't know the language and he only had a few hundred dollars in his pocket. But nonetheless, he took the same journey many immigrants had before him in hopes that he could one day achieve the American dream. Once in the United States, he changed his name to Robert Che and met a Korean-American woman named Janice, who he fell quickly in love with. Together, they opened a beauty supply store in Philadelphia, and it flourished. It did better than they could have ever dreamed. It made them feel comfortable enough to have two children and to buy that beautiful house at 139 Gwenmont Drive. But the Che's American dream would come to a crashing halt on January 9, 2009, when a member of the family was murdered. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Robert and Janice Che had a schedule, and they stuck to it. Ever since they had their beauty supply shop, they would follow the same morning routine. However, now, in 2009, because their children were grown, still living at home, but grown, and did not need attention in the morning, they would wake up at around 4 a.m., get ready for the day, and leave their house at 5.15 a.m. precisely in order to get to the store in Philadelphia before 6 a.m. Usually, Robert was ready before Janice. So he would go to the car and start the engine and wait patiently for his wife to join him, especially in the winter, when the car would need warming first. This is the same routine that the couple in their late 50s was following on the morning of January 9th, 2009. Robert Che was in the warming car in the driveway of their home while his wife was putting on her shoes in the garage getting ready to run out and meet her husband. It was 5.10 a.m. and they were right on time. But this morning would be very, very different. Janice Che had heard someone walking into the garage, so she looked up. She saw that three figures in black hooded sweatshirts, their hoods pulled tight, had her husband at gunpoint, and were walking towards her. Once inside the garage, the two men held Robert down and proceeded to duct tape him, while one man held Janice back. They bound his ankles and his hands behind his back. Robert had been yelling and begging them to stop, so they covered his head completely with duct tape, leaving only room for his nostrils. One man stayed with Robert while the other two men took Janice upstairs into the master bedroom. They forced her to open the safe that they had. While upstairs, the men also woke up her 23-year-old daughter, Mina, and next, they barged in to their 30-year-old son Richard's room with flashlights and their guns out. 
They carried him out of his bed, and when he tried to protest, one of the men pistol-whipped him. The ringing in his ear was immediate, and so was the fear that he felt for the other members of his family. They carried Janice and her two children into the basement. They sat them on the couch and bound them with duct tape. While the three members of the Che family sit on the couch, they could tell that the men that held them hostage were agitated about something. One of the men that was with them kept making phone calls. It was clear that the men did not think that Janice and her children were a threat because at one point they all left to search the house for more valuables. While sitting on the couch, Janice had been working on her duct tape the whole time. And once the men left, she was really able to fight her way out of it. She looked at her children and said she was going to get help, and she ran out of the basement exit. The men came back quickly when they heard a sound in the basement. Once they realized Janice had escaped and was most likely getting help from a neighbor, they chose to retreat from the house. Richard then sprung into action and freed himself from the duct tape and then helped his sister out as well. Once Janice had left the house, she, still covered with duct tape, did go to a neighbor's house. And from there, she called the police. Not knowing if his mother was able to get to a neighbor or a phone, Richard also called the police. While he was on the phone with the operator, he ran throughout the house checking to see if the men were really gone and where his father was. When he reached the garage, he found his bound father. Duct tape still covered his feet and his hands behind his back, and the only visible part of his head was a patch of hair at the very top. There was so much blood surrounding his father's head and coming from the duct tape that Richard thought that his father had been shot in the face. He grabbed his sister's hand and ran with her back upstairs to hide in the bedroom just in case the men came back. That is what he told the 911 operator. Hurry, I think my father is shot. Three armed gunmen came in and took the money, and I think my dad's been shot. But unfortunately, it didn't matter how fast first responders came. Robert Che had been murdered. When police arrived at the scene, they were first greeted by Janice Che, who had run out from a neighbor's house. My husband, she yelled, you have to get to my husband. The officers and Janice tried to gain access to the house through the front door. However, it was locked. She told the men that she didn't have the key on her and that they should just break down the door. The officer was able to eventually kick in the door, and he told Janice Che to wait outside while he secured the house. Not knowing where to go first, the officer made his way up the staircase. Halfway up the staircase, he was stopped by the Che children. They were yelling at him to stop and that they needed to go into the garage because that's where their father was and he really needed help. Three men had been holding them hostage and they needed to get to their father. The officer made his way through the laundry room, where he noticed that there was blood smeared against the wall and tracked on the floor throughout the room. He opened the garage door, and there, too, was blood everywhere. Robert Che lay still on the floor of the garage, blood surrounding him and pooled in other areas of the room. Duct tape covered the man's entire head, and the officer wondered how he was even able to breathe. He reached down and checked the man's vitals. He found that there was no pulse. He turned to Robert Che's two children and had to let them know that their father had passed away. 
The officer, of course, called for backup, and the two children were told to wait outside with their mother, so the crime scene wasn't contaminated any further. In searching around the garage, the officer found a bloody folded knife. He thought then this man had not been shot, and because there was so much blood coming from the man's face that he was maybe stabbed in the face several times. It was so hard to tell because the duct tape was on his face, so they just didn't know what facial wounds that he suffered. But when you do, even if you were to like get cut in your face, you would bleed profusely. Oh, yeah. Trust me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's actually like really crazy. Um, you got to think, too, if this guy's head is completely like wrapped with duct tape, and let's say he sustained some sort of injury like that, you have to think his nose is his only way to breathe. But if he's getting, like, blood down his face yeah. and he's laying down, it's possible he could have pulled, like, around the duct tape and he maybe he could have, like, even choked like or, like, couldn't breathe from all the blood. Right. Because, like, your airways are cut off. Except, I mean, you know, his nose was out there, but still, I mean, that's crazy. Right. It's your only way to breathe. So if that is cut, yeah. then Imagine you're going to suffocate. Or he could have got pistol whipped or, or yeah. another uh, other blunt injuries. Like, that would be the crappiest way to go. Get beat up and then you get tied up like a mummy. It's like, yeah, it's fucked up. You can't breathe. Before anyone arrived at the scene, the seasoned officer, who had been a transit officer in Philadelphia, knew that this was going to be a big deal in North Wales. Hell, it would have been a big deal anywhere. This family was terrorized and their father and husband brutally murdered. And the men that were responsible, they were on the run. And most likely desperate at this point that's crazy too because now you have these three guys that are out there and it's like what do they even go in there for like how much do they really get away with as far, i mean i mean like material wise i mean like was it worth it like right and the community now is going to be terrified oh yeah 100 percent. okay guys let's take a break to hear from our first sponsor of the show better help is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals in my experience, my conversations with a therapist have helped me get past many interferences that I didn't even know were present in my life. And once I could confront them, let them go, my life changed for the better. Well, now there's a way for you to do the same on your own time. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log on to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they made it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that people post daily. Here's an example of a recent review from August 28, 2020. Julia is so helpful to me and really helps me understand why I think the way that I do and why I act the way I act. She gives me constructive responses and looks out for my best interests at all times. Best relationship I have had with a therapist for my entire adult life. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash TCC. That's BetterHelp and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And BetterHelp has a special offer for true crime couple listeners. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash TCC. Again, that's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash TCC. Okay, let's get back to the episode. The detectives that were eventually assigned to the case were in luck because three members of the Che family survived the attack. He had witnesses that could help him piece together what happened and who these men possibly were. Through speaking with the family, the investigators determined that Robert Che was restrained so much because Janice told them that initially her husband was struggling with them a lot, trying to prevent the men from gaining entry into his house where his children were sleeping. Janice watched the men beat her husband before she was taken upstairs to the master bedroom to unlock the family safe. They also took any jewelry that was in the room. Mina heard noises outside of her bedroom. It sounded like her mother was hyperventilating outside of her door. So she went out to see what was wrong, and she was grabbed instantly by two men. They dragged her downstairs to the garage, her mother following behind. They made Mina kneel before her father, who was at this point clinging on to life and barely breathing. If you don't listen, this will happen to you, she was told. And as she wept for her father, she was brought into the basement with her mother, where the two women were bound with duct tape. Next, the men went into Richard's room to wake him up. As a 30-year-old man, he did pose a threat to them. So to disable him, they hit him in the head with the butt of their gun and brought him down to the basement as well. There, he saw his sister and mother bound on the couch. He was then told to lay on his stomach and was bound the same way that his father was. Once his mother ran out and escaped, Richard said that the men bolted out of the house, and this is when he was able to free himself and his sister. He then went to lock the front door in fear that the men would come back. Now, that did help answer some questions for investigators because they were wondering, you know, how did these men gain entry if the front door was locked? But now it makes sense. The garage door was left open. So they basically snuck up on Robert Che and then forced him through the open garage door. So, of course, there was no signs of forced entry. And that's why the front door was locked again, because he was scared that the men would come back. Yeah. You know what? Um, you know, what's a little puzzling to me already right off the start is that either two things happened. Either these three men already knew their routine because they do it every day and they were being watched or someone told them their routine. Because okay. what are the odds that these three armed men, right, know exactly when to strike to catch them off guard? Like, right. you know what I mean? I mean, you have the garage open. It's like you have to know what they're doing every day. No, I understand. Yeah. And that's why police always do kind of say to you, like, yeah, routine is wonderful and great for your mental health. But <laughs> at the same time, sometimes having an exact routine could harm you a little bit. Why don't you tell the audience what you do for your routine to change your routine I up a bit? Why don't you tell <laughs> well, them Well, I'm mentally unstable. So <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to take advice from me. <laughs> I take a different way to work 
all the time and like i just randomly choose it as soon as i like leave yeah that's what she does so. she also wakes up at different times yeah I do. all the time um would well, thank god she doesn't do it like before i wake up right because yeah. that would be terrible because I, have... I, I do get up really early for work but um i think it's really funny how that she does could that. i not like want to do that doing all this research it's <laughs> it's like the more research he does the more paranoid the more crazy gets. i get yeah but you know what i guess it is a good thing you know you know kate is a master of the craft you know <laughs> a She's master like, of changing my routine yes up. but um now i'm gonna have to learn new ways to get to work because now i'm leaving from the house yeah so that'll that's my new project that's, well that's been exciting to watch you come up with plans yes for that <laughs> As soon as we moved into the house, I was like, we need a security system. We need to get that bar for the sliding glass door. That thing freaks me out. It's lovely. A little bit of a panic attack, though. And just really quick story, really quickly before we continue, because I think you guys want to hear this. So my dad said, why don't we get like a piece of wood to like as a door stopper thing for the sliding glass doors? And Kay goes, no, I want like a metal bar. <laughs> yeah, like not like, enough. I want- <laughs> Like, I don't want a wood bar. I want a metal bar that has, like, a door stopper thing potential, like, in it built in. Yeah, because, like, what if it splinters? And my dad just goes, oh, 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 wow. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Didn't realize you were that crazy. You know? <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, dad, it's okay. Kay's paranoid. <laughs> she likes being safe. Oversafe. Oversafe. So both Janice Che and her son Richard were able to contact the police at that point and ask for help. The investigators asked the surviving family members about the appearance of these men. The three of them told the same story. There were three black men wearing hoodies. They did not wear face coverings or masks of any kind. Now that also has to be scary when people are holding you captive in your home and robbing you that they're not wearing masks because they've attacked the father already, right? I mean, most likely they know that he might not survive this. But if the men aren't scared to hide their identity from the family, I could imagine that at the time the family members were thinking, well, they're going to kill us then. That is a very bizarre thing for them not to wear like a disguise Masks, or, or something yeah. that can cover them up. I, that's bizarre, actually. So that's why they were they were they thought they were going to die. Right. They yeah. were terrified. Richard Che also mentioned to police that one of the men kept talking on a phone throughout the whole ordeal, and he seemed really angry, but he couldn't really make out what he was saying. After the family explained what had happened that morning, they were asked to work with a sketch artist to come up with a composite drawing of the men. So the investigators determined that this had to be a targeted case. They knew that there was going to be a safe in the house, and they were calling an outside source so they must have had accomplices or a getaway. Like you said, they seem to know the routine because what an odd time to be there. So Right. But why wouldn't they wear a disguise? If they if think about it, if they had the wherewithal to think ahead to plan, let's just say, if they knew their routine, why wouldn't you wear a disguise? It's a really good point. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm kind of writing away my own thing, but like it's kind of weird. <laughs> you would go to the extent to find that information out, but then wouldn't like do the like what would make you not obvious of who you are. Like Right. That doesn't make sense. Well, the next step in the investigation was to question the neighbors on anything they may have seen. Now, Gwenmont Drive is a very exclusive street. The one where the inhabitants know if someone, like, got a pizza delivery that night because everyone's looking out for new cars. The detectives caught a break from a man who was picking up recycling. He noticed a large black SUV parked outside the home of the Che residence. The men were standing outside of the car. 
He had never seen them before, and the men were just staring at the house, but not approaching it. The investigators figured that this must have been the men casing out the house. Now, the Chase did own the beauty supply store, so detectives were thinking that the store might have something to do with the crime. Because when they questioned the family, they made it really clear that the Chase didn't have any enemies, and they stuck mainly to themselves. So the surveillance videos were pulled from the store, and days' worth of footage was poured over. In the days leading up to the attack, robbery, and murder, there had been two men who were caught by surveillance wandering around the store, but not buying anything. When the detectives showed the footage to the Che family, they stated that the men on the surveillance tape were not the same men that murdered their father and had held them captive. So it wasn't the men from the surveillance tape. And just when the detectives felt like they weren't getting any answers, the autopsy report came in from Robert Che, and it told a horrible tale. The 58-year-old man had been bound with silver duct tape around his ankles, his wrists, which were then held behind his back. The duct tape also covered his entire head, leaving only a small sliver for his nose. Sorry I keep repeating about the duct tape on the head, but that's it just is so constrictive and it gives me anxiety because I can only breathe out of my mouth because my deviated right. septum, so well, I would have been done for. Yeah, well, it's kind of like almost in a weird way being like buried alive. Or like, yeah. You know what I mean? That's kind of why I say he's kind of like a mummy like that because it's just like you can't, there's no way for him to, you know, get any air out. Right. I mean, his nose is exposed, but you don't know like how much. Like, exactly. So Robert was then beaten with a hard-edged object, which, given the crime scene and the weapons that were used, was most likely the butt of a gun. Both his head and body sustained blows from this object. Robert also suffered from cuts and slashes throughout his body and face. These wounds were not deep, so it was determined that they were not made to be life-threatening, but they were designed to hurt. During the beating, Robert Che received a broken nose. Because his head was duct taped and it was the only way to breathe through his nose, which was now filled with blood, Robert Che was unable to breathe. Like you said. I called it, unfortunately. Unfortunately. The official cause of death was asphyxia. He had drowned in his own blood. This, the medical examiner said, was a slow and painful death. Now, I just feel like what's made it worse, of course, that was a slow and painful death. But he died not knowing what happened to his family. The last thing he probably remembered was his daughter being knelt in front of him. That's true. To watch him die. Yeah. I mean, so he's probably dying terrified, not knowing, is this going to happen to them as well? That's really sad. It's mental torture as well as physical. Right. It seemed like the only thing that would help investigators solve this crime was DNA evidence. Because no one was coming forward with information on the crime And a sketch can really only go so far. Detectives were not sure if they were going to find any evidence because the Che family told them that the men were all wearing latex gloves the entire time. Everything that was found at the scene was sent to the Pennsylvania State Crime Lab, including all the pieces of duct tape that were taken from the victims. The reason the lab wanted to test the duct tape was because, in their experience, they had found DNA on duct tape in the past because many times when people cut duct tape, they do so with their teeth. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that, but I know I'd totally do that. Yeah, I mean, it's because it, it's something that you don't think of when you do it. It's like kind of like an unconscious thing. Right. So, 
that's probably what the perpetrators did. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, not, they can only hope. Well, it's not like they're sitting there with like a scissor cutting strips and, and doing that. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I would say it was probably yeah. a fast thing they were doing. Right. An entire roll of duct tape was used to subdue the Che family. And the tedious work of testing each piece finally paid off for the crime lab. DNA was found on the corner edge of a piece of duct tape. There was also a piece of black latex glove that was found at the scene in the garage. It also tested positive for DNA, as some was found at the fingertip part of the glove. The two DNA samples did not match each other, so it was clear that they had DNA from two of the three men that had committed this crime. However, they didn't have any suspects to test the DNA against. While the investigators worked their case, the Che family lived in fear. It was unclear why this happened, if it was just a robbery or if this was a message that was being sent to the family. They were concerned that they were still in danger, especially because they saw the faces of the men who did this. So nervous to be in their house on Gwenmont Drive, they stayed with family who also lived in North Wales. A Pennsylvania prosecutor approached the Che family and the detectives working the case to let them know that she was on to a targeted attack spree that she thought maybe could be a part of what happened to the Che family. She stated that there had been a string of burglaries in the surrounding Philadelphia area, and the victims were always Asian American businessmen. The prosecutor, a Korean American herself, believe that these robberies were taking place because of two stereotypes that exist regarding the Asian community in America. First, that they keep large amounts of cash in their homes, and second, that they rarely call the police. In the past two months, there had been 15 robberies. I mean, that is something that you can say is a pattern and a robbery spree oh yeah 100 percent. so you're telling me that all 15 residents were korean american descent well not necessarily korean descent but um asian american descent oh okay okay the businessmen would be followed home from their shops or stores and then days later they would be robbed so this seemed very promising because it did seem to fit exactly what happened to the chase But when investigators went to read the files that the prosecutors had on the 15 cases, they noticed that there were some key differences in the case that guaranteed that the Chase attack was definitely not a part of this crime spree. The differences that were in the other robberies were that the men or the families that were held at gunpoint, um, money and valuables were just taken and there was no violence ever committed. The men that also committed these crimes wore masks, and that was something that they didn't do with the Che family. Um, that's true, um, but the one thing that you can't really refute here is the fact that somebody had to have told them, or they knew that there was money that there could have been possible money there. Correct. Right? Or why would you yeah. go there? Why would you do it? Well, it could have been like the same. What detectives were thinking at this point within the investigation was that. Maybe someone did something similar to that crime spree where, okay, they knew this guy owns a beauty supply place. He has a lot of cash on him. Let's follow him home, case his house out, and then rob him. So they still thought the store was involved. Okay. But they don't think that it was the same people that were committing that spree of crimes only because they weren't going to change their MO after 15 successful crimes. Right. I see what you're saying. So at this point, it had been weeks since Robert Che had been murdered. His family still lived with Robert's sister, 
brother-in-law, and their son because they felt unsafe. It was only the support of their immediate family that got them through those weeks. The funeral had been really difficult to make it through, and they were still living in fear of their lives. To make them feel better, the Police Department of North Wales put a security detail on the family, which stayed with each member at all times. It was also a few weeks in that the department received a warrant to obtain all cellular tower data from the tower nearest the Che house. Now, this was complicated, especially for 2009, because if you can remember, cell phones were kind of still in their early phases. The Che family had told the detectives working the case that one of the men was on a cell phone a lot. So they chose to look back at the history of the tower and see what cellular activity took place during the time of the crime. Now, this was something that was easy because it was really early in the morning in a suburban area, so there was no activity except for the one person making calls from the Che home. So when that number was tracked down, it turned out that it belonged to a burner phone that, of course, isn't registered with an individual, but that burner phone called numbers that were actual cell phone numbers. And when they went through the list of names that the phone had called, One of them stuck out to police, Angelo Shen. They knew the name. He definitely had a record involving narcotics charges, but it wasn't for that reason that the name stuck out to police. It was because Angelo Shen was the nephew of Robert Che. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, okay. See, see, so I knew it. It had to, someone's telling them stuff. Okay. Wow. Okay. So this was definitely a massive development in the case. Well, yeah, because you have a family member now could possibly be involved. Exactly. But this is where we're going to take a break to hear from our final sponsor of the show, Best Fiends. I've been playing Best Fiends for a while now, like level 845 a while now. And I still love the game. The game is so fun and forever evolving. I love getting new characters and watching them grow and change as I level up, and they are so adorable at every stage. The constant new events and monthly game updates also keep me invested, and I feel like I'm always getting rewarded just for playing. It's like the game is a service for all of its players, and it never gets old. I just love pulling out my phone and passing the time advancing through all of the levels. It came in really big handy during the move when we were waiting for people to come and deliver our furniture. The puzzle game has gotten more challenging as the levels have advanced, and I'm becoming very serious about making sure all my characters stay at the same levels at all times so we can tackle anything that a new level throws at us. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. The detectives had to play this right. They knew the Che family was nervous that they were still in danger and didn't want to return to their home. So they chose instead to seek solace with their immediate family, the Chin family. Had the Chays taken themselves out of the pan and into the proverbial fire? Were they staying with a man that was actually responsible for the murder of Robert? 
The detectives did not want to arouse the suspicions of Shin, so they called Richard Che and asked him where Angelo was. He told them that he was home with them. Why? Well, we want you, your mother, your sister to come down to the station, but we want you to bring Angelo. Tell him that you need a ride because the police have more questions for you, but we need him to come in with you. Just trust us. So under the ruse that the family was too distraught to drive, Angelo Shin went in with his aunt and cousins so they could talk to the police. Once they arrived at the station, Shin was asked to sit in one room while the other members of the family sat in another room. Angelo Shin was not just nephew or cousin to the chase. He was much more than that. Shin was the same age as Richard, so the two were very close. They'd obviously taken different paths in life, but their bond never wavered. When the two were in high school, Shin's parents decided that they were going to spend an extended amount of time in South Korea, a year and a half to be exact. Shin didn't want to leave the United States and miss out on schooling because if he left for a year and a half, he most likely would have to be left back a grade in American schools. So without a second thought, the Chase took him in. He lived under their roof for a year and a half. Robert began to look at him like a second son, and Richard felt as if Angelo was his brother rather than his cousin. This was an ultimate betrayal. Oh my god, yeah. And imagine like being like you're being consoled by someone that had a had their hand in that and then you're in their house. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's crazy to me. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, could you imagine that happening to us? Oh my god. No. You'd feel blindsided. Yeah. So before they questioned Shin, the detectives came in to break the news to the Che family that they believed that Angelo Shin was involved in the planning and execution of the robbery that later resulted in the loss of Robert's life. The family was confused and devastated. They asked the detectives what happened and what they knew, but the family was told that they would be briefed again once they had more information. They had to question Shin. Richard Che said in later interviews that hearing the news that Angelo Shin was involved in the attack on his family was like getting hit by the butt of a gun twice. He just wanted to know why. I mean, why would his cousin do that to them? He said at first he was just hoping that it was all a misunderstanding, that it was a mistake. But when the realization set in, it was like it was so disturbing. Yeah, I mean, some people, when they need money, they go to crazy extremes. I mean, I wouldn't throw it past them that this guy probably owed somebody else money or needed drug money or something or some other bad illegal activity and thought the first place to go to was somebody that he already knew had money, which would have been his cousin. Right. And And his uncle. And his uncle. And that's what he did because it's convenient. It's actually pretty sad because most of the time it's like, you know, know, people rob their family because it's easy. Right, and that's what the detectives are thinking right now, is like, why did he do it? What was his motive, really? So when the crime against the Che family initially took place, Angelo Shin was questioned because he was so close to the family, but not because he was the suspect. Detectives just wanted to know more about the family and whether or not they had any enemies. Angelo Shin told them that he would do whatever they needed him to do to assist them in catching the men who did this. He also told them that he had invited the family to stay with him and his parents so they would be able to sleep at night. And it all just seemed so calculated now. Yeah, and it's and it actually, it becomes weird 
very creepy. That you would allow that even after you did that. Yes. So when detectives finally sat down to interrogate him, they asked him straight out, were you involved in the home invasion of your aunt and uncle? He told them he was not. Then they asked him if he had any contact with the individuals that were involved in the crime. Again, he denied involvement. So at this point, police knew that they had Angelo Shin on something, but he clearly wasn't going to talk. After they asked him again and again, they had him there for a few hours and he just wasn't speaking. They knew that they didn't have enough on him to charge him with murder, so they chose to take a different route. Detectives charged Angelo Shin with giving false statement to police because they did have proof that he spoke to the people in the house that that were involved in the crime. So he did give a false statement. So they could arrest him on that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the goal of any investigator is if you have someone that could be a suspect, you're going to do anything you can to hold them. I mean, even if that means charging him with, like, the smallest thing possible. Exactly. It's anything to hold him for at least 24 hours. Well, that's so funny because after spending just 24 hours in jail, their tactic paid off because Shin folded. Right. And that's the goal. You know, like, that's their goal as investigators. Right. Through his lawyer, he told police that he was ready to talk. Once in front of them, he told detectives the whole story. He said that it started about a month ago when he was bragging to one of his friends that lived in Philadelphia about the amount of cash his uncle usually had on him and the big house that he lived in. This is also where Shin spent most of his time as his parents also owned a business in the city. His friend's name was Tree Man. The detective, of course, had to stop him and say, what's his real name? And um, Shin gave the name of Joseph Page, said he was 23 years old. Well, as soon as he told Paige that his uncle was always depositing the cash that he carried out of the store into a safe that was located in his bedroom every night, Paige told Shin that he had a friend that specialized in home invasions. And that was how the plan began. So what's crazy is that, see, as a rational person, you were trying to justify why he started the robbery of his uncle. But as you can see here, there's no reason. Yeah, I guess you're right. He didn't even owe money to people. He didn't owe anything. I kind of got the impression from the interviews that were given that he was trying to build up some type of like street credit. I, you know, I was thinking that right now, right before you said that, I was thinking probably street cred. I mean, that, what other, like, if you're not doing it for the money or you're not doing it for just to get out of a hole yourself, it has to be a reason. To advance yourself. Right. Somehow, in some form. Yeah. You You have to. Page recruited two other men, Amitadi Latham and Kyrie Pitts. They brought in three other people to be involved with the planning and the getaway. Those people were Robert Eastman, Julius Wise, and Sybil White. It was agreed that the money would be split evenly between all of them. While they were planning the crime, Angelo Shin was instrumental. Because he lived with the Chase for a year and a half, he knew the layout of the house and the routine of his aunt and uncle. He told police that things were never supposed to get violent. He did not think any members of his family would be harmed. In the very early morning hours of January 9, 2009, all of those involved with the plan worked to stock up the car. Detectives asked Shin what was placed in the car, what was essentially being brought for the home invasion, and he said that the men had duct tape guns and knives. 
And then one of the detectives asked, can you really say that you didn't think any violence was going to come to your family when the men you recruited brought those weapons? I mean, did he really think they would just be used as a scare tactic? Especially when the uncle was fighting them off. It was right. putting up a fight. Like, you have to know that your your uncle's not going to just, like, lay down and die. Especially being former military. Right. So, you know, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Finally, they asked Shin who had been calling him from the burner phone and why. Shin told them that it had been Paige who was calling him. And he was doing so because he was furious. He thought there was going to be a lot of money in the safe within the house. But there wasn't. There was only $15,000 in the safe. And apparently Shin had told them all that it was more like $100,000. He also did not expect Robert to fight back. So when he did, Paige got mad. Shin told the detectives that Paige told him that his uncle was dead and they killed him. And when he asked why, why they did that, he just said, I did what I had to do. After Angelo Shin's confession, he was arrested and warrants were placed for the other six members of the group that planned the robbery. Once all six were arrested, DNA swabs were taken to see whose DNA matched the two samples found at the crime scene. The DNA on the glove that was found in the garage belonged to Joseph Page, and the DNA on the duct tape matched Amitati Latham. Angelo Shin's case did not go to trial. He pled guilty to four counts of robbery, two counts of criminal conspiracy, and one count of third-degree murder and burglary. For all of those offenses, Shin was sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. In the end, Richard Che said that he could not believe that his own cousin, someone who he thought of as a brother, would betray his family as Shin did. I mean, it's crazy, he said. Angelo was even at his funeral. How could he sit there and listen to the grief of his aunt and his two cousins, knowing that he planned the whole thing? It's true. I mean, it takes um, a very unique uh, like personality. Cold. And like super cold and just like, like I don't know. Well, then he was just trying to cover himself, I think. Oh, yeah. But, I, you know, it's just like this whole case. The one thing that just still doesn't make sense to me is, why, man? Why did you do it? I would love an explanation more than just, oh, right. I did it for... I did it to, like, gain... What are you, like, in high school? Like, um, to gain popularity? Like, well, what? he never explained why. Right. That's and, what I'm saying. That's very strange. And what's really sad is that the betrayal of his family and a 20-year minimum sentence was all for just $2,000. Yeah. Because that was the cut. If you think cut. about it, right? And then, like, what, what's even worse is that he says he didn't want to hurt his family or he didn't think it would get that badly. <laughs> Or, you know, that things wouldn't get so bad. But you have to think, you're causing your family, like, anxiety, stress. They're scared out of their wits. And and now your uncle's dead. Even though you didn't mean for that to happen. It's still on your hands. how much trauma you caused for the family. And then, like, even after the fact. So, you know, you say you didn't want to hurt them, but you hurt them tremendously. I agree. So... Julius Wise, Robert Eastman, and Sybil White all pled guilty to third-degree murder. They all received four to eight years in prison, with a probationary time of 20 years after their release. 
During the sentence of Eastman, when he gave his statement, he said that when Page and Latham came out of the house, they were covered head to toe in blood. So he knew something had went wrong. How do you feel about that? Sentencing wise, do you think it was fair? Well, for the three people who weren't physically there, but were involved in the planning, that's really the max sentence that they can get under the law. Yeah. I think the 20 years probationary period makes it a little bit more just because now they're going to be scrutinized a lot more. And some some of these people were young, like the only female that was involved in the case, Sybil White, she was only 19 years old. So right. I think I would hope that this would scare her enough to like not make you not want to ever be involved with people that would plan a horrific crime like this. Well, that's probably why... It's a 20-year probation period. Right. So that way, if she happens to, or, th- or any of them to slip up, you're going to go back to jail. So, um, Exactly. And, you know, also, I forgot to add something. The whole, like, the cousin now orchestrating this whole thing, when he gets out of prison, he actually has the worst deal of all. Because now he has to face the fact that he killed his uncle. Yeah. And that his whole family isn't going to be there for him. So it's like, what are you coming out for? Right. Like, I feel like in in this guy's case, what's the point of coming out? You have nothing to come back to. You have no support system, and no one's going to even care about you. Well, his 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 I mean, his parents like supported him. His immediate, I guess, but not his. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, family. there's just rifts there. Oh, a hundred percent. I don't think we'll ever be able to You've be. You've changed mended. your family's lives. They yeah. now won't speak to each other anymore. One hundred percent. Joseph Page, Kyrie Pitts, and Amitati Latham pled not guilty, and all three of them went to trial. They actually faced trial together. The entire trial lasted 15 days, and it was very emotional. During one point, when the crime scene photos and autopsy pictures of Robert Che were shown to the jury, one member openly started weeping. She couldn't even contain herself. And Mina Che wanted to testify. Now, the prosecutor told her she didn't have to stay for the whole trial to hear what happened to her father, to have to look at those pictures. But she chose to do so for the memory of her father. Mina Che testified about the whole thing as well. Um, She stated that Latham was in the house that night. And she knew that for a fact because before he fled, he grabbed her thigh and said, I'll see you later, baby girl. And that was something that had haunted her ever since. So she got a really close up look of his face. She also said that she remembered seeing Paige from that night, but she never got a clear look at the third man. So she could not identify Kyrie Pitts. So throughout the trial, Latham was very unemotional, um, and so was Paige. The jury found Latham and Paige guilty of second-degree murder, robbery, burglary, conspiracy, in connection with the crime. The judge stated that although it could not be clear who broke the victim's nose, it was not that one act killed him. It was the planning, the duct taping of his entire head, the nonstop beating that he was subjected to, and the fact that they never tried to help him. All of that led to his death. And the fact they both had blood all over their clothes meant that they were both involved in the attack. Which I think is fair as far as what he's telling the entire courtroom. Right. Right. I, I couldn't agree more. Latham, who was at the time 27 years old, received a life sentence for the murder of Robert Che. 
Consecutively, he had to serve a sentence of 32 to 64 years for conspiracy and robbery. Joseph Page, who was 24 years old, was sentenced to life in prison and another 40 to 80 years to be served consecutively for the same thing, the conspiracy and the robbery. And 19-year-old Kyrie Pitts was acquitted by the jury during the trial because he couldn't be identified by the victim and his DNA was not found at the scene. I knew that was going to happen the moment that the daughter testified, that she could not remember. Identify him. Right. Well, this was also aided by the fact that Latham refused to admit that anyone else was there. Oh, wow. Okay. So that also aided in Pitt's, Pitt's acquittal. Wow. So various appeals have been attempted by Paige, Latham, and Shin. However, none of them have been granted. And that one was just a wild ride because you have to feel so unbelievably terrible for that family to not only do you lose your father but now you've lost your cousin who planned the murder of your father for no reason for two thousand dollars yeah that's true and now you've lost like his parents and it's like it's just destroyed generations basically yeah and also all the people that were involved in that you literally got locked up for the rest of your life at such a young age, all of you, for $2,000. It's very sad. So it really wasn't worth it. And a lot of those people that were locked up were very young as well. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Like, they all were very young. Yeah. So. Um, one thing that did add to their the sentence length was the fact that most of them did have prior records. Like, Latham, for example, had um, nine past narcotics charges on him. So Yeah. I mean, that have... aided... In the length of the sentence. Right. I mean, they're not going to be as forgiving if they were first-time offenders. Correct. Which is what happens is how they look at it. Right. So we just want to give a big, huge, amazing thank you to Hannah Cortade, who upped her pledge from $1 to $5. Natalie Leah, who also updated her pledge from $1 to $5. Casey Jones. Kelly Buffone, who went from $5 to 10 Esmeralda Graby who is pledging $5, and so is Paula Winters. Abigail Altabeff also upped her pledge, and we want to welcome new members Sophie Howarth, Melissa Womack, Jacqueline Mojeka, Philippa Holtevisk. I'm so sorry if I said your name wrong. I'm pretty sure I did. You can correct me, and then I'll redo it next time. That's what we'll do. (laughs) Amanda Winters, Dakota Rose, Sarah Ann Brackett, Nick Corchain, Haley McMahon, Summer Roberts, Lauren Laforte, F. Livingston, Jenna Greenlee, and Chris Moody. Guys, thank you so much for becoming a part of Patreon, and we hope that you're enjoying the Patreon episodes for August, and we can't wait to bring you them for September. And we also have some pretty big changes coming to Patreon. We're going to be giving you a little bit more content, but we're going to get into that um, after October. So again, thank you for becoming Patreons. And if you're interested in getting extra content and ad-free episodes, you can join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right, guys. See you later. Bye, guys.